I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at, uh, where are we? I got Valley Chapel on my mind. Grace. Yeah, that's where we are, GCF Valley. I know where we're at. Uh, it's good to see you here, especially if you are uh, worshiping with us maybe for the first time today. We're glad that you are here. GCF exists to glorify God, and we do that through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and uh, community. I just want to give you a heads up. Next Sunday, as we move here into the summer, we'll continue in our summer series in the Psalms, really picking up where we left off last year. We've done that for the last two summers, so we're up to Psalm 20. So Psalm 20, beginning next Sunday, and I want to encourage you, uh, you can read ahead. That's uh, certainly advisable even. So Psalm 20 next week, and uh, certainly as uh, Drew prayed this morning, uh, today we're uh, sending Paul and Emily and those going with them uh, to uh, Valley Chapel PCA. I hope you can stay at the end of service. We'll have a chance to really honor them. And uh, we do have a whole bunch of cupcakes, 200 of them, in fact, uh, that we can enjoy together after the service. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Jude. Jude, if you're wondering where's Jude, it's right near the end of your Bible. In fact, go to Revelation and just turn a page back, and you will find Jude. And I'll read just the first couple of verses for us this morning. The words will be up on the screen here behind me. If you're able to, please stand as I read in Jude. Verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, we are oftentimes hard of heart and hard of hearing. So I pray that our hearts would be soft and sensitive to you by your spirit this morning. Give us ears to hear your voice. We, we need to know, Lord, what to believe. We need to know how to think. And we need to know how to live. So give us ears to hear your voice. And give us willing hearts to obey. And do this, Lord, for the sake of your glory and the good of the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. How would you respond if somebody walked up to you and asked you, who are you? Who are you? I suppose it would depend on the person who's asking you that question. I imagine, guys, if your wife sees you stuff an entire Costco-sized pizza in your mouth all at once and just stares at you and then says, who are you? you would want to think carefully about your response to her. If you're in a job interview, you might respond with a whole list of your accomplishments. Here's your skills, your past experiences, your education. This is, this is who you are. Recent study conducted by Cornell University found that 80% of online daters lie about some aspect of who they are. I don't 
think that we're surprised. I thought it'd be lower, or like 95% of people lie, but they lie about their age, their weight, their income, their hobbies. And yes, the, the posted pictures that you see online, that's not exactly true either. So it seems like there's a lot of different ways we can answer this question. Well, who are you? But how we answer that is actually really, really important because it gets to our identity. It gets to our foundational or even functional identity. Whatever we base our identity on or whoever we base our identity in, well, that really does matter. For example, if you center your life on your spouse or perhaps on your kids or your marriage, you run the risk of becoming either very controlling or emotionally dependent. If your functional identity is tied to your job, to your career, then what happens when that job is actually less than satisfying? That could either turn you into a workaholic or an alcoholic very, very quickly. Or what happens when you just lose the job altogether? If your life is centered on pleasure or comfort as the highest goal, that is, that is what you are after, then are you really surprised when you may be addicted to that drug of pleasure or comfort? So this question of identity, of who you actually are, is actually really, really important for all of us, especially, well, especially in our day and in our time. This is a time of change. Yes, our culture is changing, seems to be changing at warp speed. The things that we thought we could count on five years ago, well, we no longer can. You and I are changing. And our church is changing, as you just heard Pastor, or Drew pray. Pastor Paul is planting Valley Chapel PCA, so this is his last official Sunday here on staff. We feel that. I know he and his family feel that. And so we recognize that for both churches, this is a time of change, a time of transition. There's, there's a newness. What, what do we expect here? And so this question of identity, of who we are foundationally as the people of God, that's a timely question for every one of us here. And how we answer that question of our identity, that has very real and deep implications for how we actually live. And if we are going to actually live as faithful to Jesus, as in fact the bride of Christ, the people of God. So to answer that question, I want us to look at one of the smallest books of the Bible, Jude. It also happens to be one of the most overlooked parts of the Bible. I think largely due to its location, there it is, tucked away right after 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, right before Revelation. I think most people, if you don't really know much about Jude, you kind of think that's like the last pit stop before we get to the really, really good stuff of Revelation. Even if you don't know much about the book of Revelation, you know that there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes down there. And so if you're not really looking for Jude, you're probably going to miss it altogether. But that would actually be a mistake because in this short book, there's a whole lot in there. Jude packs quite a punch. Who is Jude? Well, we learn from verse 1, he is the brother of James, which means he is the half-brother to Jesus. James, you may recall, was a leader in the early New Testament church, according to Galatians 1, 
19. He's also the author of the New Testament letter that bears his name. The point here is that Jude occupies a place in a very impressive family tree. But notice how Jude refers to himself. Verse 1. I mean, if somebody asked Jude, Jude, who are you? His answer is not, I'm the brother of Jesus. That's who I am. You know that guy? I'm with him. No, notice his answer. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, being a brother, half-brother of Jesus, that would be something noteworthy, wouldn't you agree? I mean, imagine the stories you could share, the tales you could tell. Evidently, Jude understood that there's something even better. There's something even greater than being a half-brother to Jesus, and that is being a servant of Jesus living literally here as a slave to Jesus, surrendering your life to Jesus. So Jude isn't interested in building a name for himself. He's not interested in attracting attention to himself, having people notice him. He's actually putting himself here on much the same level as everybody else here in this New Testament church. I'm a servant. He knows he doesn't get any special treatment because of his blood relatives, he needs the gospel just like everybody else does. So he begins his letter here with a very clear sense of his own identity, of who he is, and he answers that question right up front. Jude, who are you? He says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is an identity that is worth living for. It's really the foundation. I'm a servant. That's who we are. We are servants of Christ Jesus. Now, I really only want to focus here on just this first verse of this very short book this morning. And that may seem, uh, that may not sound very impressive to your ears at all, only one verse. But I can assure you, if you come to grips with the truth uh, in this one verse of what Jude says about our identity as who we are as God's people, then it can absolutely change your life. And it can change the way that you are currently living. Jude writes in verse 1, let me read this. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So who are you? If you are a Christian here today, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have turned from your sins, you've repented, you're trusting in Christ and his finished work on the cross and his glorious resurrection from the dead, Jude says that you are three things. You are called, you are loved, and you are kept. That is what is true about our identity. That is who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. This is true this morning, even if you are here and you are racked with guilt about this last week of your life, about the sins that you've committed, maybe the sins that you committed this morning on the way to church. That is a real thing. But this identity is true when the news is not good from your spouse or your friend or your boss or your doctor 
this identity remains. What Jude says about you is true when you receive that pay raise and you get promoted or when you don't and the buddy, your buddy beside you actually gets the raise that you deserve and the promotion that you deserve and the title that you really want. As followers of Jesus, what Jude says here about us is true in every circumstance, in every season, the trials, the tragedies, the triumphs, the pain, the joys, the successes. You are called, you are loved, and you are kept secure. That's who we are. And we need to remember this. And yes, encourage each other with these truths. So I want to look at these individually. Let's look at this first identity marker. We are called. So again, if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, you are called. And it's important, as Jude writes this, to note that, that he intends actually this first clause, this first term, you are called, that is in fact the main clause, the main phrase here to describe our identity. Being loved and being kept flow out of our being called. And what does that mean? To be called really means to be summoned by God. And it really has a dual meaning. Being summoned by God unto salvation, for salvation, and then summoned by God for a specific task, a purpose, you might say an office. So God the Father extends his invitation, his call to you and me to be recipients of his salvation, to become sons and daughters of the king. And then he sends us out in mission to carry the gospel, to raise kids, to love our neighbors, to plant churches. So this calling of God the Father to us, this is our primary calling. There are a whole lot of other callings we have. Yes, we're called to be good employees. We're called to be faithful spouses and so forth. Those are all important. But those are all secondary to this primary calling that God calls us to himself, to believe in him, to know him, to be found in him. That's the primary call upon our lives. Now this language of calling, it's probably familiar to most of us here. We have semblances of that as we see it even in our own culture. If you're a sports fan, you, you might follow your team and you read that uh, your, as you read about your favorite team, you know that there's a, a minor league and, and, and guys get called up to play with the big boys, to play with the big club. And that's usually a good thing, at least for those guys. As a, I mean, hockey season just ended, but as a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, routinely throughout the year, I'm always interested in, well, who might the Maple Leafs call up from the minors? Who might they call up to play with the big boys? Because they need help. And they really do. And at some point, as a Maple Leaf fan, you just think anybody who's not afraid of the puck, that's fine. They'll do. That's much better than what we got going on here. But these young athletes, they spend their whole lives dreaming about that opportunity to play at the pro level. And so when that call comes to them, well, you go. You don't hesitate. When you receive the call to say, hey, you're being called up to play with the Maple Leafs, you don't say, let me get back to you on that. Let me, let me think through that a little bit more. Let me just consider some of my options here. I need to talk to a few folks, see if that's going to be a good deal. 
No, you go. You have been summoned for the opportunity of your life. When God calls you and me unto salvation, it is the opportunity to save your life. And so you go. You don't have to consider your options. In fact, because the only options are, do I really want to live or will I die? And so when Jude says here, you have been called by God, brothers and sisters, at at its most simplest level, it means then that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, it is because the God of the universe has chosen you. The Lord of the universe decided and delighted to be in a relationship with you. And that's why throughout the New Testament, there's all kinds of language that that bears this out, that, that is impressed upon us. The saints in Christ are repeatedly referred to as being called. So the Apostle Paul, right in the very beginnings of Romans, Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in both of those letters, uh, he writes that he's called to be an apostle. And in fact, Paul means there that we have been called for a specific purpose. And our purpose is to live holy lives, that is, to be saints. We're called to be set apart to him. And so our calling marks us as really belonging to Jesus. That's Romans 1, chapter 6. The end of the book of Romans, those who are called, Paul says, love God. And they know then that he will work everything according to their good, Romans 8, 28. And this call of God isn't just for this earthly life, but in fact it extends beyond this earthly life for all eternity. So those whom God calls actually have a glorious inheritance and a glorious future. Revelation 17, 19, almost the very last verse of the Bible. To those who are called, they're chosen, they're faithful, they're aligned with the Lamb of God, with Jesus Christ. So all those who are called are, yes, recipients of the gospel, saved by grace through faith. And that, brothers and sisters, is what makes our calling so incredible. That's what's so transformative and, frankly, I think so life-changing. Because God's call, well, he doesn't call us because of our worth. He doesn't call us because of our merits. It's because of his worth and his merits. And so we read and we can rejoice. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Why? Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Do you know what that means? God did not choose you because you deserved it, or me. And it wasn't based on how well you performed, or if you would behave, or your potential to perform and behave. No, it's based on his free and sovereign grace. And when we begin to come to grips with that, then we actually begin to see how this is such a comfort for us. 
God's grace is a comfort for our souls. You are part of God's plan from the very beginning. He chose you before you were even born. He set his affection on you before anybody knew that you would ever exist. Well, we can be honest, in the normal day-to-day pressures of life and the stresses of life, don't we all sometimes wonder, Lord, what are you up to here? What are you doing here? And why? It was easy. As it was in Jude's day, there were trial and complications. It was easy for them then and for us now to look around and wonder, God, are, are, are you still on your throne? Are you still... You're still who you say you are. We're going to be okay, right? And right in the middle of life, right in the middle of our lives, Jude says, you are called. God has chosen you. He summoned you to himself, to a never-ending eternal relationship with him. So brothers and sisters, there is no more secure relationship than God the Father calling you into a relationship with him. That's security, period. So who are you? Jude says you are called by God the Father. Here's the second identity marker. Still in verse 1, we are loved in God. Literally, Jude says, you are beloved in God the Father. Not simply that we are loved by God, that's very good, but in fact, the phrase there he uses, we are loved in God. It means that God loves us as we are in him. It'd kind of be like a child, a young child that is picked up in a father's arms and, and in that closeness, that intimacy is experiencing the father's love while he or she remains there. We are perfectly loved when we are there. So again, it speaks to that intensity and intimacy of God's love that, that draws us into his presence. The root of this word, this is the agape, agape love. That's that sacrificial, really unconditional love. This is not emotionalism on God's part. This is not mere sentimentality on God's part. No, God chooses to act upon us in agape, with his agape love. And he is committed then to loving us, yes, through our wanderings and through our struggles and through the complications of life. He's committed to doing that. And praise God that he's committed to doing that. Because where would we be if he didn't? Now, there's something else here in the English that... Uh, we, we, we can't really tell here, and that is the, the present tense, the participle, beloved, that Jude speaks here of, of the present experience of God's love. There's a big difference, isn't there, between having been loved at some point in the past and currently being loved in the present tense. If you're married, you know what that's like. Or at least you have some idea of what that's like. But brothers and sisters, if your present experience of God's love is only in the past, then your future is bleak. Let me say that again. 
if today your present experience of God's love is only looking back to the past of some time when he must have loved you in the past, but without a present experience, a, a present sense of God's great love for you today, what kind of future is that? Jude says, no, no, no. Right here, right now, you are loved by God. Right here, right now, you are the object of God's affection, his permanent and unchanging sacrificial love. So really, as believers in Christ, every Christian, we, we don't have to look back and say, well, yeah, I know that God loved me at one point, probably when I said the prayer. But I don't know about now, because there's a lot of water under that bridge, there's a lot of dirty water under that bridge, and it's been a hard season, so I don't know that he really loves me now. No. Every believer in Jesus Christ can say present tense, I am loved by God. Because his love is unlike human love. His love is even the best of human love. God's love is different, brothers and sisters, because our love, even the best of human love, can sometimes be very fickle. And it can change moment by moment, and it can be transient. And we wonder, but not so with God. God's love is, as John Piper says, the only love in which the honeymoon never ends. That's, that's a good kind of love, isn't it? You are beloved in God the Father. That's really a simple truth, isn't it? Super simple. But yet it, it's profound as Christians, I think we never want to grow old or grow cold to the fact that the creator of the universe dearly loves us. And we need to be reminded daily of that same precious truth. Yes, it can be easily said as throwaway words, maybe when we don't know what to say or somebody walks up to us and we're kind of dumbfounded, they maybe share something and say, well, Jesus loves you? God loves you? But it's so critical that we actually grasp the weight of that. And church, it's even more amazing. God's love for us is more amazing when we consider that God doesn't love us because we deserve him to. We're, we're not worthy. In fact, God loved us at our most unworthy and most unlovable. Because Jesus went to the cross when you or I were at our absolute worst. He saw the worst in us. And on the cross, he, he gave us his best for us. Yeah, God would have been completely just, entirely just to give us the full outpouring of his wrath because of our sins. But he didn't do that. In his great love, he sent Christ. Now we can, he calls us his beloved children. And so if he did that then, how much more now if you are now in Christ? And that's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel assures us that as his child, God looks upon you right now with all the love that he has for his own son, Jesus Christ. So we can rest in that security, in fact. We are loved in God and loved by God. And in an insecure world, that's how you and I can sleep at night. 
And that's how we can get up the next morning and live faithful lives. Because we are loved in God and by love. What that also means, church, very practically, is that when things go wrong in your life, and they will, and they do, it also means that when life doesn't go as you planned or even as you hoped, and it won't, it's never because God has stopped loving you. So in times of uncertainty, times of change, times of transition, where, where you pray and you're not quite sure what the road ahead looks like, and, and where you don't maybe see the road ahead very clearly, that's not because God has stopped loving you. In fact, that's not because God has not put his steadfast love upon you. No, it's still there. And so, it brings perspective to the challenges that we all do face. Challenges in marriage, our, our failures as parents, disappointments, loneliness, rejection, frustration, pain, suffering. It's never because God has stopped loving us. In fact, it is his love that calls us to change, to repent, to to be transformed, to to pay attention to the good that he wants to do in our lives. J.I. Packer said this, God is love to us, holy, omnipotent love at every moment and in every event of everyday life. That's all-encompassing. Every moment and every event of everyday life. So who are you? Jude says you are called, which means that you are loved in God. And here's that third identity marker. We are kept by God. We are kept by God. Some translations use the word guarded. We are guarded or kept. In other words, God takes great care to attend. He's very meticulous. No detail is unforeseen to him really means to preserve, some translations say that. God will keep us alive, safe from harm. Now this keeping or guarding by God was a major emphasis for Jude. This is how he begins his letter, verse 2. And notice this is actually how he ends his letter, verse 24. Let me read that for you. Puts the beginning and the end. Now to him who is able to, here's that word, keep you, guard you, preserve you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So again, this keeping or guarding by God was a matter of first importance for Jude, I think precisely because Jude lived in a very dangerous time. Dangers from within, dangers from without. False teachers were picking off churchgoers left and right. The gospel was not seen as good news for Jude. And here we are 2,000 years later and maybe not everything has changed. We live in an increasingly hostile age. So if you're going to name the name of Christ, if you're going to identify as a follower of Jesus Christ, well, then you can expect opposition in some form. And when that opposition comes, and it will, it's oftentimes when we ask and we wonder, How are we going to make it? Are we going to make it? 
Is our confidence in our ability to just white-knuckle it? Hunker down until Jesus comes back? I mean, are, are we supposed to, as Christians, just grin and bear it? It's kind of the Christian version of just suck it up. Is our shared hope for GCF Valley and Valley Chapel PCA just a bunch of people who just are trying to grin and bear it and white-knuckle it and just hope that it all works out? No. Jude says it's far better than that. Jude says that we are kept secure by God. We are, in fact, guarded by God. So the same God who not only began our Christian life is the same God who is protecting us today, and he will ensure that, in fact, you and I will make it to the end because he will never stop guarding. He will never stop protecting. He will never stop preserving our lives. He himself guards us and keeps us in a hostile age. I hope that's good news for you. It really should be good news for all of us who know that if it actually is up to us to just white-knuckle it through life, we're going to blow it. We're not that good. We're we're not going to be able to make it. And so hear the reassuring words of Jesus again, John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. A very wooden, very literal translation of that verse reads like this. They shall not, and then it repeats it, they shall not, I repeat, they shall not ever perish in the slightest. Not even in the slightest. So Jesus is pretty emphatic in John 10. You are guarded, you are protected, you are kept secure. Yes, in the present, but also in the future. So church, that doesn't mean that we don't face risks. That doesn't mean that we don't have trials or times of suffering. That doesn't mean that we don't sin or that people sin against us. It means that if you are a Christian, the God of all creation is keeping you and guarding you, and will keep you secure in him whatever the situation and the circumstances you face today, tomorrow, or beyond. I wonder if Jude, when he's writing this introduction here, I wonder if he's thinking of Psalm 121. Psalm, there are a lot of the Psalms that really pick up this theme of God keeping us, of him guarding us. And so if we continue here in our summer series in the psalm, we're not going to get to Psalm 121 for another decade. So I want to give you just a heads up that this is what we, 10 years from now, we're going to do this. Psalm 121, just let this land on your soul. And I want you to notice the keeping and the guarding here that God does for us. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep you. Your life, the Lord will 
keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What great encouragement for all of us as Christians. In a hostile age, we're in a time of change and transition. We are safe. We are protected. We have nothing to fear if we are in Christ Jesus. That's who we are as disciples. We are called. We are loved. We are kept and guarded by God. And this isn't just like a bullet list that Jude is like, I'm just going to list everything here. No, this is a single multifaceted identity. So all three of these markers are, are meant to be taken together. And together they form breathtakingly beautiful identity. And all of this is a gift of God's grace to us. Church, there's, there's nothing shaky, there's nothing unstable about our identity in Christ. And so if you have trusted in Jesus this morning, you have turned from your sins, and you are banking all of your happy tomorrows on him, well, this is who you are today. You are called by God. You are loved in him, and he will keep you, guard you for all eternity. It's an all-encompassing identity, and you'll recognize that there is a very real past, present, and future sense to it. In the past, God called you. In the present, God loves you. And in the future, God will keep you. And that's what we need to know this morning and every morning, frankly. This is true as we approach summer vacations. It's true as we enjoy backyard barbecues. This is true as you move to a new grade in school in the fall or a new job or a new friendship or a new challenge. This is true for every person who has received the gospel. Know that Jesus has done all the work. He's done everything so that you and I could be made right and holy and be in a right relationship with God. There's nothing left undone. Jesus has done it all. And so if you have not yet turned to Jesus for your salvation, why not? Who are you, really? In Christ, we are called. We are loved. We are kept secure by God's grace. And by that same grace, amazing grace, supernatural grace, unfathomable grace, there's no better identity in the world.